Hello everyone, welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Kahl and I talk about how you can start, run and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called Built for Value, Not for Applause. Product Management Under Heavy Constraints. Let's get started. A bootstrap founder will have very little time to devote to building things that don't matter. Everything you do in your bootstrap business should have a meaningful impact on moving your company towards a state of stability and growth. Bells and whistles are the least of your concerns when you're trying to get to profitability. So to accomplish this, focus on maximizing the value that your product is capable of producing. Three major approaches should go into any product decision. Number one is it should maximize qualitative impact. It should answer the question, how well does it solve the customer's problem? Number two is that it should maximize quantitative impact. How many customers are being helped? And number three, it should provide a minimum of usability. How easy is it for the customer to get their work done? As bootstrappers, we have no time to deal with things that don't provide value to our customers and hence to our business. So let's take a look at how you can accomplish all of these three things when you decide how to build features for your product. Let's talk about maximal qualitative impact. My advice here is to focus on the hot path. This is a software engineering term for the parts of your software that are running much more often than others. For a photo uploading platform, that would be the part of the software that resizes photos into thumbnails. And at the same time, for a social media website, it's very likely the algorithm that determines what is shown in your user social streams. So what unites these software components is that if you speed them up even slightly, it'll be a significant impact on the whole product. And you can also extend this concept beyond software. What are the hot paths in the workflow of your customers? Which things do they need to do over and over again that your product doesn't help with just yet? Is there anything you can speed up significantly that would impact the day-to-day activities of your customers? At Victor Panda, we found a simple thing that was such a hot path in the workflow of our customers. Many teachers were putting a little sign-off text at the end of the student feedback that they created to let the parents of the students know about the availability of the particular teacher in the near future. And since this changed from day to day, it didn't fit into their, or from week to week, I guess, it didn't fit into their feedback templates, as those were meant to contain information about the curriculum and the, the lesson and not the teacher. So when we noticed that teachers were copying and pasting this little bit of text into their finished feedback, we quickly added a centralized signature feature where they could add their little sign-off to their generated feedback automatically by setting a signature, saving them a few seconds every time they used a product. And over a day, writing 20, 30 pieces of feedback, that's a couple minutes, and it quickly adds up. So by adding lots of features like this, we shaved off a few hours a week by just optimizing the hot path. Within your application, this can be applied by looking at performance. If a screen that your users use 100 times a day loads just a little bit faster, half a second or something, that's a few minutes saved at the end of the day. If you measure which parts of your service your customers use most often, you'll know where your optimization efforts will be most impactful. You can accomplish this on the user experience level by using tools like Hotjar, Crazy Egg, which call themselves behavioral analytic tools and are mostly recording your user sessions. 
They offer heat maps and full session recordings, which are very helpful, but also kind of raise many privacy questions. So use with care if you integrate these products into your product and consider making them an opt-in choice for your customers. People usually don't like being watched. So if if you want to have people be fine with this, tell them and have them opt into this. A less intrusive way is collecting anonymized metrics from your front-end code by counting how often a particular page or component is instantiated and used. The details will be unique to every product out there, but the idea is always the same. Find out what people use most often and make it better. There's services like Amplitude, Heap, or Pendo, and they will help you with that as well. Consequentially, you'll avoid wasting time by ignoring the cold path as well. The cold paths, even, because there's lots of those. If your users rarely use a non-critical feature, it doesn't make sense to optimize it, even if it is easier than speeding up another part of the product. Just make sure that the features that are rarely used, but at the time very important, are working well enough. Stuff like reliably submitting a report before a deadline after weeks and weeks of working on it to make sure that that stuff works as well. But you probably won't need to optimize for it. So let's talk about the second impact talking about this maximal quantitative impact. Whenever you invest time and money into a new feature or an improvement, make sure it impacts as many customers as possible at the same time. To provide the highest potential value to the largest number of people, don't focus on something that only 10% of your customers can use, particularly in the beginning. You'll be able to add these things at a later point when you're swimming in resources, hopefully. Notably in the beginning, any change you make to your product and to your business has to be meaningful. It has to be a meaningful improvement over the status quo, both of these things. So over time, you'll likely add a few things that will help a few people a lot. But to gain critical mass, you need to start with something that helps a lot of people, at least a little bit. The idea here is to turn your earliest customers into evangelists for your product who will shout it from the rooftops. So if you only build things that amaze a few of them, there'll be fewer people to do your marketing for you. There'll be the odd exception of a feature that's created for a small but vocal segment of your customers. Be careful not to do this too often or your product will move too far off the path of being useful for all of your customers and not just the loud ones. You kind of have to juggle this. Some people, if you help them, they'll be super useful, but not at the cost of alienating all the other customers. Measuring quantitative impact works the same way, kind of um, that you would measure hot path since those measurements um, of a qualitative kind of use are at least partially quantitative as well. For each feature, you should count and plot how many people of users actually use it over reasonable periods of time, rank by most used feature, and look at potential improvements there. For new features, making sure that they will resonate with all of your customers can be checked by adding a mock button for the viewer component that you don't have yet, and... Um, present the curious users who click on it with a pop-up promising that you will implement it and just measure how often people click that mock button. And when a threshold is reached, when we have a couple hundred clicks by different people, I guess you can consider building it. So that would be maximizing the quantitative impact. So let's talk about the last point, the third one, which is minimum usability with maximum simplicity. Um, It kind of starts with when you build features it's not likely that you will release a fully featured and highly polished version of your first deployment, right? So on your first deployment. It, it would, I, I think I would even consider this a waste of time 
as it would take far too long and would lack any meaningful validation to throw out a fully featured and highly polished version. For that reason, you should release features as soon as they provide the basic functionality that they're supposed to allow for. However, that does not mean your product should be ugly or look scrappy. A usable and clean interface is a valuable feature in itself. Don't go overboard with the optics though. Remember that your solution has to be better than what customers have used before using your product. It does not have to be the best possible version of itself just yet. After all, you're bootstrapper, right? So that said, you can make sure you have a baseline of usability by using a UI framework from the beginning. There's frameworks, there's an abundance of frameworks, but things like Bootstrap or Tailwind UI or Material Design, all of these things will allow you to build all of your components, views, and pages using a coordinated and cohesive design approach. With predefined layouts and interface elements, you can be sure that you'll have a good foundation. <laughs> foundation is also a CSS framework from which to build your features. Right? Just make sure that there's some basic unity in your interface. And whenever you can, just reduce clutter and complexity in your product with every single feature that you add, try to reduce complexity. If configuration options can be removed from a view and put into a configuration dialog, move them over. If something isn't used most of the time, having it linger in the interface might be more of a distraction than it's actually helpful. Keep your interfaces as simple as possible. In many cases, this will go, this will go against the express, express wishes of your customers. In my experience, users will always go to, oh, just add a button for this as a suggested solution to their immediate problems. Well, your users are not designers or product managers. All that this suggestion should do for you is to trigger some research into the underlying problem and how you can best solve it without adding complexity to your interface. To sum up, in the survival stage of your business, focus your efforts on creating the features that make your service noticeably better for the majority of your users without making the product harder to use. If a feature design takes all these boxes, go ahead and build it. If it doesn't, stash it for now and build something else that does. I wanna share a few stories about our experience at Feedback Panda, particularly the ones that had hidden costs that ran into the thousands of dollars after this short segment. Our show is in is participating in the Help Founders Project. And today we'd like to shine some spotlight on Mastermind Jam by Ken Wallace. Mastermind Jam is the fastest way for online startup founders, very much like yourself and myself, to join a business mastermind group. They help you join these groups for feedback and accountability. I've been following Ken on Twitter, actually, and he's been building an amazing platform and just writes really thoughtful tweets. So like all good products, this one, too was born out of a need that he felt for himself. So he built it to get feedback and stay accountable and feel less isolated and get the answers that he needed to grow his business. And if you want to do the same, head over to mastermindgem.com. Ken has built a vibrant community with business mastermind groups and accountability tools, a very supportive community and on-demand expert coaching as well. So if you want to level up your entrepreneurial journey, just go and check it out at mastermindgem.com. And I'm really happy to support fellow founders. If you're interested in having a shout out here on the podcast, just head over to helpfounders.com and submit your application. And now back to product management. I want to share a few 
anecdotes and answer some questions about how we dealt with this at Feedback Panda. One of the most painful learnings is related to measuring the hot pass and our application, the story guy. We started measuring for performance bottlenecks in our backend code very early and it never caused any trouble. It was really great. We had an integration into a service called AppSignal that would measure the database calls and computational performance of our backend logic. And it often gave me great insight into what could be optimized for. And it was great. So we thought we need this in the front end too. And I built that myself. I built some code. It's always a great opening to a really, really dangerous story. I built some code into our user-facing application that would collect information on performance metrics, like uh, time to first paint, how quickly a page would load, that kind of stuff, and specific user events, like loading data, often how um, often it would happen, right? And how long the API calls would take, or just one of them, just a lot of data was collected. And that data would be marshaled into a big, big package of data, JSON data, sent to our servers, and then pushed into an event collection service called Keen.io that we were using for a product. This first version of our front-end usage metrics included all events, all possible things that I could measure. What I didn't think about was that our event storage service charged per event scans, like per, per different kind of event that they would ingest into the system. And I sent thousands of events every couple seconds. And at the end of the month that this happened, a service that usually charged us about 30 bucks presented us with an invoice of over a thousand euros, I think. Like it was, yeah, whoops. So I immediately trimmed the whole thing down to the really, really essential metrics, just a couple dozen of them, and the costs went back to normal. Just telling you this story because there's real risk in measuring too much information. And it's not exclusively for financial reasons like ours. Overcollecting in many ways can cause privacy issues, data storage issues. It can lead to, I guess, analysis paralysis. You have too much information. You would then need to do some qualitative insight um, exploration, which takes a lot of time, takes a lot of work, and I guess a lot of methodical knowledge. And you may not have this. So just really collect the things that you need to know to make sound choices about hot path and analysis and seeing usage patterns in your software. Don't collect everything hoping that you will find something from it. This will actually lead to issues. Second point, let me share a few things that our customers asked for that we didn't build and why we didn't. Uh, I think it was often requested but never made it into Feedback Panda were automated submissions. This feature would extend our product in a way where it wouldn't just create feedback automatically. That was like the core of what Feedback Panda did, creating text, but it would also submit it, or people would wanted us to also submit it to their teaching portals automatically, skipping any kind of manual involvement. That's automating one further step for our customers. We felt this would be a qualitative impact risk. And the reason was the technical, the questionable technical skill of most of our customers. Automatically submitting potentially incomplete work was a bigger risk for us than having the user take another step manually, which allowed them to spot potential issues and double check what they were sending. So getting submitted feedback changed if they had already submitted something wrongly involved a lengthy process where the teacher would need to reach out to admins at the school they were teaching at and challenge a submission and all that. And we really didn't want to be responsible for this extra work. 
So we never touched this kind of automation. It really would have improved the quality of the product just a little bit, just remove one further step in a list of many, but the added risk of the non-optimal path where people would mistakenly click a button or think they were done and weren't or wanted to change something the last minute, you know, like that email you write and the moment you hit send, you know exactly what you did wrong. We didn't want to take responsibility for that. So we never built it. Another thing that we never built is calendar synchronization. When a teacher teaches for multiple schools, they might book double appointments with students at different schools at the same time. So they needed something like a Calendly for online teachers, and they asked us to build it. Many people asked us to build that because there were quite a few that actually had this problem, but we figured it still would constitute a quantitative impact risk. There was not enough people in our customer base to warrant us building this. There's only 10-ish percent of our customers taught for multiple schools, and few of them needed collision detection. Many were doing pretty well. It's just a really, really low number of them. So spending our time building this feature would distract us from the main purpose of Feedback Panda, which was student management and feedback creation. Nothing about Feedback Panda from the beginning was about calendar synchronization, right? That was not our thing. So it's a great feature for sure, but it was not for us. So if you are looking for a SaaS opportunity in the education technology market, that one is still available. I don't think anybody has really solved this because it requires a lot of um, integration and a lot of um, synchronization knowledge that we also didn't have. So let me um, close this whole podcast episode up with uh, responding to a couple questions from Twitter about this week's topic. Ben had asked me about public roadmaps and change logs. If we had one or would our audience have checked either of them out, we had a change log for months. We used Headway, which was super easy to integrate, and we had it on our dashboard, and nobody even looked at it. Our audience had no interest in checking out our change log. We tried to measure it, tried to see, make it a bit bigger, make it a bit more readable. People still didn't look at it. And I've since talked to a number of founders about this, and it turns out that for most SaaS businesses, nobody cares unless they integrate you. The moment your changes affect their product directly and require them to make changes on their own, your changelog becomes something of interest. I witnessed this too. I, in reflection, I figured this out at Feedback Panda. But from a de development perspective, we integrated with a number of teaching portals and the lack of changelogs or roadmaps made us very anxious as we never knew what would change and when, right? We just had to kind of wait for things to happen and then quickly react. And that is one of the main sources of anxiety in our business, something that I'm still working through on a psychological level, right? There's still something in me that kind of feels, ooh, uh, what, what, what happens if an integration partner breaks away? It's still there. And if you want to make your integration partners happy, provide a changelog, a release schedule, and a roadmap. That'll help them significantly reduce both like both the anxiety, both the emotional state, but also just the planability of features and of development resources. It's really helpful, and it's actually a feature of your business if you can supply this. If you have a service that doesn't have any integrations or doesn't integrate, it doesn't seem to be required. Hope this answers your question. Corey asks about feature prioritization. He's interested in how we decided what to build and also maybe even more interested in how we decided when and in what order to build. 
Very interesting topic. I talked about feature prioritization systems in the last podcast and I wrote about it in the blog. And here is how we did it over time. We started with a, if it kind of makes sense, build it approach for a few months. And we added features as the requests came in from our early adopters. It was just like, we knew that our product had like a baseline of usability for our use case as Danielle was a teacher and she actually used the product to, to solve our own problems. So we knew that at least on, on the basic level, all features were there that were required. So anything that other people needed that were kind of diverging from how she used to solve her problems, we really had to learn through people talking about it to us through Intercom or the chat system we used at the time. That was the way we did it. We just listened to people, asked people if there's anything they needed and they would tell us and then we would kind of think about it. Hmm, does it make sense? Well, then we're going to build it. A few months into the business, we started getting more mainstream customers who would suggest different things for different reasons. From there, we used a big old list, which we glanced at and ordered by what had maximum quantitative impact. We always focus on building features to empower as many customers as possible with one deployment. So if we had to make a choice between a feature that would solve a problem perfectly for one particular customer or mostly solve a problem for all of our customers, we would prioritize the feature that impacted more customers. That was for around a year. I think that worked pretty well. And after a year or so, I started using a modified DIE scoring, D-I-E scoring, which is demand, impact, and effort model to rank my dev work. Demand was measured by just counting the number of feature requests that we had found um, were pointing at the same underlying problem. And impact was the potential usefulness for as many customers as possible. And effort finally was a wild guess, pretty much based on the decades of coding experience I had. Right? You never really know how much effort's going to go into um, something until you're done building it. So with a score like that, it was possible to do development work on a very limited time budget because up until the end of Feedback Panda, the business was essentially me and Danielle, two people. We had 5,000 customers and more at the end. So... I was juggling a lot of um, activities, a lot of jobs in the business, so my development budget was limited. So having the DIE die scoring model really, really helped me to prioritize the things, not only what to do, but also in what order to do, because if you have a number, you can just sort by that, right? And if you have a score, you sort by the score and you almost religiously take the top thing because you have proven through your own logic at some point in the past that this is the most important thing on the list still. So our feature selection method was always based on dog fooding. And if it didn't make sense from a teacher perspective for us, it wouldn't go into the product. We just didn't want the product to turn into anything generic. And customers are always asking for stuff, right? And they're always asking for things that they think they need. And we quickly learned to ignore their feature ideas completely and deeply analyze the underlying need instead and solve that with our own features, our own interpretation of how to solve the problem. Because as much as the customer customer is ex, an expert in their own experience, we were the experts in solving problems for customers like them. There's a great blog post on nocomplexity.com and a very interesting Hacker News discussion around that about how customers don't ask for complexity. They want simple things. Yes, it turns out they want that. But what they suggest will, if you carelessly integrate it the moment they say it, cause a lot of complexity. So take it as an indicator for a vaguely felt pain and explore that. So thank you for the questions, everyone. And thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. 
You can find me on Twitter at ArvidKahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L, and you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you have any questions about this episode, reach out on Twitter and send an email to arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com. And if you want to support me and the Bootstrap Founder podcast, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever you subscribe to this podcast. It'll help other founders and founders-to-be find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their own businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.